0: We pray as we just come to look at God's word together. Father God, we just thank you that we can say a a promise like that, that all I am is yours. We thank you, Lord, that you've shown us the way to live. You've shown us what real wisdom looks like. Um, But Lord, so many people get it wrong, go down dark alleys and Lord, take wrong turns. And Father, we pray in this church this morning that every single one of us here would know what it is to follow the king. And we would make the right choices, Father. Not the way the world goes, but the way you go. Father God, be with us now as we look at Daniel chapter 6, and we pray that you would open our hearts as we continue this journey, looking at the life of this amazing man, Lord, in captivity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've got a Bible, which is not a bad thing to have at church, um, just in case you were wondering, um, it's good to have a Bible at church. Um, uh, for the record, if you don't have one, you always forget there's always some as you walk in. Um, We're going to look at Daniel chapter 6. We've been going through um, the first five chapters of Daniel. And uh, we're just going to read to you verses 1 to 16 in Daniel chapter 6. There we are. So we can look at that just for a few minutes. Before we come on to that, a little bit of autobiography. I've been doing this job, uh, church minister or ministry, since about 2004. In fact, I did some stuff before that. Um, 2004, I've been a church minister, and, uh, and there are many jobs out there that get different reactions from people. Um, I don't know if anyone here is a tax man, but that gets a, a, an interesting reaction, doesn't it? Generally groaning, maybe a bit of tutting. Um, if you're a traffic warden, I apologize if any of you are traffic wardens, um, we can offer you prayer. No, no. Um, but some people traffic wardens, get routinely booed, even though we all know the law and parking in the wrong place, we still are still a shocked when we get the little yellow special gift on our car windscreen, but nothing gets as mixed a reaction as my job. Uh, When you announce to people you're a church minister, you get all sorts of different reactions. Sometimes when I tell people what my job is, they're suddenly overcome with an almost unusual interest in the job. What's it like? What do you do on a Tuesday at ten past three? I get asked that sort of question. Is it a permanent job? I'm always asked, do you do something else? But then again, I get that from Christians as well. But um, what do you do all day long? What's it like? Uh, some people pour out their entire lives when they discover my job because they feel they can trust me, which of course they can. Um, other people, however, when they when they ask me the question, "What do you do for a living?" and when I tell them, almost sneer at me and go, "Oh." I had one person say, "What do you do for a living, mate?" and I said, well, "I work for the church." And they were, no lie, their response was, oh, you're one of them, and walked off. <laughs> and that was Andrea. <laughs> um, I had one particular evening, me and Andrea, our 15-year anniversary of being married, went out for a meal, I can't tell you the whole story, unfortunately, we went for quite a posh meal, yeah, it cost a few quid, um, you know, I'm that sort of room, in fact, actually, I think Andrea took me, actually, so, uh, so there we are, It's what I was worth. Anyway, and uh, we are having dinner, and the manager decided to come over and engage us in a... 25-minute conversation. I did keep reminding him it was our anniversary, and we didn't really want to spend it with him. Anyway, uh, he was trying to be a bit down with it for some reason, and he told us a story that I can only describe as a bit rude. Um, actually, it was quite a lot rude, and I can't tell you at all what he was telling us, but for about 20 minutes, he told us his story that got ruder and ruder and ruder, and I just knew that at some point, he would ask me the classic question, what do you do for a living, mate? And I knew that of all the times I've dreaded the question, this would be one of the times when I would enjoy answering it. And sure enough, after about 20 minutes, he stopped, paused for breath, having finished a very, very rude story, and said, "Uh, "So, what do you do for a living then, mate? And I turned and I went, no, church on the main road. He said, yeah, I was on the minister. And I've never seen somebody change the subject so quickly (laughs) (laughs) as he did. Suddenly we were talking about church choirs and when he was young and how he does a lot of work for charity. (laughs) But isn't it strange... um, Being a Christian, because you experience yourself, you don't have to be in church ministry to have different reactions from people. People treat us differently depending on what they're doing, what they think, and what they think we should be about. And actually, across the book of Daniel, this is very much his experience, isn't it? being treated differently depending on who's king or who happens to be interacting with him. And we see, um, as we're going through our series, our title is Being Faithful in an Ungodly Society. And we're looking in these first three weeks at the three kings that Daniel managed to live through. Three kings and three different challenges. We talked about power with Nebuchadnezzar. Last week, we talked about the danger of pride. And this week, we see a different challenge for Daniel and for us. A challenge this week about being godly in an ungodly society is about having integrity, keeping the integrity of our faith through change, through promotion, and through injustice. Daniel keeps his integrity through all three of those. I'm just going to throw this over there. It's in the way. Um, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 3 says this about integrity. says, the integrity of the upright guides them but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Duplicity is probably my favorite word. Um, it's also a good film with um, Sandra Bullock. But it says the up- integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Think about that. And in the same book, chapter 21, verse 3, says to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And if you're a, a Jewish person hearing that, you'd be... Quite taken aback. So much emphasis is put on sacrifice and going to the temple and doing all the rituals. But the proverb writer there says, actually, that's not as important to God as doing what is right and doing what is just. It's interesting that Zoe should talk about wisdom to us this morning because wisdom isn't doing what the world thinks is right, not even going through religious motions. It's about doing what God thinks is right. Some of the wisest people are despised by our culture because they're doing what god wants rather than the other way around mark twain the famous american philosopher said if you tell the truth you don't have to remember anything isn't that good how many people do you know who think well i said to maureen that i better remember that because if i'm going to say the same thing and i can't change because they might talk to each other if you just tell the truth you don't have to remember what you said to anybody and it's quite liberating isn't it and that's integrity, isn't it? How can you be bothered to lie and cheat and always play people off one another? Daniel was a man who kept his integrity through the reign of three different kings, three very different kings. He kept his integrity, but not just through three, three kings, it's hard to say, through two empires as well, the Babylonian and the median Persian king uh, Empire so we're at that third king you remember last week we talked about king belshazzar how he was uh, captured and killed all in one night having become proud and arrogant and uh, using the things from the temple uh, a big party that he was throwing even though he was surrounded by his enemies now the persians have moved in they've taken the babylonian empire and king darius is now king he is now the head honcho if you like and uh, the and persian empire swept across the babylonians swept them away it's now persian empire Persian rule Persian uh, culture and this guy Darius is a smart cookie he knows how to lead a big large group of people he is not stupid he knows what to do he divides his newfound kingdom uh, amongst 120 satraps or provincial governors and those 120 local governors that rule a different section each are all responsible to three chief officials Daniel being one of them Daniel at this point is probably older and let's not forget this guy's life. He has been a captive in a foreign land for a long, long time. His city, his God's temple have both been destroyed at this point and he is never going home. He is never going home and yet from chapter one of Daniel all we see is an amazing man full of godliness and integrity even though he is a captive in a foreign land. And the point is that even though God doesn't rescue him, because he doesn't, God does use him and God does bless him. And maybe this morning, you're in a situation that you don't want to be in. It could be your health. It could be your age. It could be something else. It could be a job. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. Maybe I'll stop speculating. Um, But actually, whilst it's okay to pray for God to rescue you, and you should, We all need to have our minds opened up to the idea that maybe in God's sovereignty we're just where he wants you to be because he can use you and bless you in a way that if you weren't there maybe you couldn't make any difference. Don't forget at the end of chapter 6 Darius is going to write a law that says forever everybody should honour the God of Daniel. He couldn't have done that from the outside, could he? So maybe you need to pray that God will use you where you are as well as praying that in his mercy, if it's his mercy to release you from it. It's okay to pray both things simultaneously. So much of Daniel's experience in these uh, opening six chapters of Daniel uh, is actually matches that of the church across the globe. We're looking at Christian solidarity worldwide this morning because actually uh, it fits with the book of Daniel. There's persecution, there's opposition, there's lies and cheating against God's people every single day, and it's been that way for 2,000 years. There have been moments where the church has been well-loved, moments where it's been greatly hated. And we in the UK will experience What Daniel has experienced in these six chapters as our country, as our culture, evolves away from its Christian roots. The UK is moving ever so quickly, should I say, away from its Judeo-Christian roots. We are no longer a Christian country if we ever were. We are no longer a Christian nation. And its church will soon become the thing that irritates it rather than the thing it was once so proud of and loved. Culture often lurches from left To write. Priorities change overnight. Goals change, don't they? And we have a particular culture in the UK where even a small group of people, if they shout loud enough, can change lots and lots of things very easily. So this means that sometimes the church will be greatly liked and well loved, and other times the church will be despised in its own culture and country. And I would argue that as Christians in the UK, culturally speaking, church is on the way to being disliked not by individuals I might add I think the church is probably better liked now than it has been for about 20 years because individuals love their local church because the local church is active in a way it's not been for a long long time but popular culture the media is slowly turning against the church and against mainstream Christian belief why Because whilst our style may change, what we wear, what we sing, how we sing it, that all changes. Our core beliefs don't change and shouldn't change regardless of what our culture tells us. Our beliefs about God, his word and his kingdom remain the same. And they have done for 2,000 years. So as culture moves away from those beliefs, we then are on a collision course with them whether we like it or not. This has been the story for 2,000 years of church history. In the first couple of centuries, the church and Christians were persecuted mercilessly until a particular Roman emperor became a Christian. But before that, one guy wrote a letter to a Roman governor, trying to uh, a Roman official, trying to get Christians in trouble. And he spread two malicious rumours about Christians. The first was that we were incestuous. Can you believe it? And the second was that there were cannibals—not cannonballs, cannibals. Uh, Why would he say such a thing? Why would anyone believe that? He based it on the two things that the church does. The first is that we refer to each other as brother and sister. Therefore, we must be one big happy family. This his logic. And the second is that as they took communion, Christians will often refer to the bread and the wine as the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Obviously not literally. Obviously symbolic. But see how easy culture can take something a Christian believes twist it and say look they're weird you don't want them anywhere near you in a changing culture uh, what's said of Daniel in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 6 needs to be said of every Christian in this country says now Daniel was so distinguished sorry now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom we need to be people like Daniel as our culture turns away from Christianity. And it was all going well for Daniel. This new king comes, new empire, uh, new new everything, and here comes Daniel. He's doing well, he gets promoted, he's a part of the top three, and he's got great prospects. And then suddenly, it all changes. Loved by the king, but then in verses four and five, at this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to, so they found they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these corrupt finally, these men said, "We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. These two, two chief ministers, along with Daniel, the three of them don 't forget, are consumed with professional jealousy. Isn't jealousy one of the most ugly human characteristics? Isn't it ugly when people are jealous of one another? Isn't it particularly ugly when adults are jealous of other adults? It's even more ugly when adults are jealous of children or teenagers. It's awful characteristic. Um, D.L. Moody, a famous American Christian from a, a while back, used to tell this fable of an eagle, two eagles that um, one could outfly the other one easily and how the other one got quite jealous of the one that could fly higher and faster. One day, as they were, he was trying to catch up to the one that was faster, the slightly slower eagle, uh, found a sportsman who was good at archery. He flew down to the archer and said to him, I wish you could shoot down that eagle for me so I could be higher and faster. The sportsman said, well, if I could only make myself an arrow, I would shoot it down. He said, what do you need? He said, some feathers. So the eagle plucked one off each wing and gave it to the man. He made an arrow, shot the arrow up, didn't go high enough at all to reach the, the eagle that was flying in the air. He said, I need more feathers. And over the course of two or three minutes, the eagle sitting next to the sportsman slowly picked off every single feather he had on him until the sportsman turned and killed him. Deal Moody ended that fable by saying, my friend, if you are jealous... The only man you can hurt is yourself. Another story. There were two shopkeepers who were bitter rivals. Their stores were directly across the street from each other and they would spend each and every day keeping track of each other's business. If one got a customer, he would smile in triumph at the guy across the road. One night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream. He said, I will give you anything you ask, but whatever you receive, your competitor Will receive twice as much as you. Would you be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long, healthy life? Something that punched on. Well, you can, but his life will be longer and healthier. What is your desire? The man frowned and thought for a moment, and then said, "Here is my request. Strike me blind in one eye." It's not a true story. <laughs> But isn't it ugly when we're that jealous that we would rather cut our nose off to spite our face? God has blessed you abundantly, even if you have not as much as the person next to you. So back to chapter 6. You get a hint right from the beginning of uh, this chapter um, that these other two chief ministers are a bit dodgy. It's my another second favourite word, uh, duplicitous and dodgy are my two favourite words. And so you get the idea that they're both a bit dodgy, and uh, Daniel is outshining them by his godliness, by his integrity, by his work ethic. And it would have been easy for Daniel, wouldn't it, to compromise? All of that to avoid trouble. He's not stupid. He knows these two don't like him. He knows there's probably going to be a bit of an issue with them. But he carries on being godly. carries on working hard regardless of what might happen. It's interesting the similarity between this story of Daniel and the story of Jesus. Both are caught whilst they're praying. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And along comes Judas with the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus was uh, his death was orchestrated because of jealousy, just like Daniel. They were jealous, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, amongst other things, because this Nazarene was famous and popular, and people were going after him, not the other way round. So they realize they have to get rid of this king's favorite. And in verse 5, they make that, uh, that amazing statement. We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They soon realize that the only way to get him is to do something related to his faith in God. They hatch a plan and they go en masse and flatter King Darius. They say, uh, may, the king, may King Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisers, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue a decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians. So King Darius put a decree in writing. They simply suggest oh, we've got a good idea, a little 30-day law, because you're so amazing, you're such an amazing king, we all love you, all of us, look, we've all come together, we all think you're brilliant, a little 30-day law, no one worship you, everyone just worship you, we'll get chucked in lions, What a good idea, and you can see him thinking, it's a good idea, it's nice to be loved, I'll do it, 30 days, it'll pass, probably didn't even give it a second thought, I nearly called this sermon the danger of naivety, how many people have lost everything because they're so busy enjoying being flattered and they're so naive as to what people's real intentions are? Don't be naive. King Darius is unbelievably naive. He signs the law, probably feeling quite good about himself as he does it. And in Persian culture, once that law is signed, not even the king can reverse it. Daniel, in verse 10, hears about it and does something amazing. It says, now, when Daniel learned that the d- decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jeru- towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Despite the danger, despite the fact that this was an obvious trap, what does Daniel do? He goes home and he prays the way he did three times a day, every single day, knowing full well that those jealous chief ministers will be waiting to catch him out. If you want to know what godly integrity looks like, it looks like the picture of him um, um, doing that. It looks like this moment in the story of Daniel. It looks like a man knowing he's going to be caught if he compromises his faith and refusing to compromise it, whatever. That's them in the top right-hand corner if you can't see them. That is how you're supposed to live as a Christian in an ungodly society, by the way. If you're a Christian this morning... If you want to know how to live in a country that's going less and less, uh, more, more and more away from its Christian roots, you simply continue to put God first, regardless of the cost. That is what the church does across the globe every single day. It's our turn to be obvious in our faith, regardless of the cost. Daniel could have had 30 days off. He knew how long it was. Some Christians have 30 days off prayer and Bible reading without any pressure. He had lots of pressure. He had very good reading, didn't he? He could have thought a good good reason to not pray uh, for 30 days. He could have thought, well, I won't bother because it's a bit difficult. But no, no. I'm not going to compromise three times a day praying towards Jerusalem and God's temple. 30 days. He could have hidden. He could have shut the windows, but you notice the windows are open because this is what is most important. God is most important. Worshipping him is first. Nothing is better than that, not even my safety. God is the best. God is better than entrapment. He is better than even death. And just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego before him, compromising their God doesn't even enter their mind. Does it ever enter our minds? We know what's not popular. We know that Christianity is becoming less and less the thing to follow. Do we find ourselves hiding it away? Because it could be difficult. Easy to preach, I know. Harder to live. Those chief ministers, once they catch Daniel, fall over themselves to run to King Darius. You can almost feel them pushing each other out the way. I want to get there first and tell him. And they rush up to him. And in verse 16 to 20, you get the story of Darius throwing him into the lion's den. They say, remember, your majesty, how you made that decree. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, Rescue he's devastated he knows he's been tricked a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that daniel's situation might not be changed then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him And he could not sleep. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you? And then Daniel calls out, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I have found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Wow. And then he shows that he's still actually a vicious dictator by killing all those uh, ministers and their families. But um, that reminds you that he's still in a very difficult uh, kingdom, Daniel. But he survives because God rescues him again, just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And just as I listen to this story, as I think about Daniel chapter 6, there are just a couple of things that are in my mind as I finish. Number one is that for us as Christians, it ought to be that the only charge people can bring against us is related to our faith in Jesus Christ, not our conduct or our morality or our character. The worst thing ever in the kingdom of God is when you have a Christian who is Christian at church but miserable at work or cuts corners at work or lies or cheats or steals. How many people do you know will say, that Christian, I know them when you don't know them and they're horrible. If that's what being a Christian is, you can keep it. I've heard people say that about other Christians. Can you believe it? that is the worst thing? The only charge the world should ever be able to levy us should be related to our faith in Christ. Not the use of our tongue, not what we look at on the internet, not what we do with our money, anything like that. Only our faith. We should be above reproach in every area except when it comes to our faith in the eyes of the world. doesn't mean you're not allowed to struggle with a sin, by the way. I don't mean that. I mean when Christians have a deliberate side to them that they think it's all right and they keep a secret. Number two, we should expect trouble. I'm afraid we're not ending with a nice pat on the back and a high five this morning. We should expect trouble as the church in the UK. Jesus himself said that in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Our brothers and sisters across the globe suffer every day for their faith. And it will be true in this country. We must expect it, not in a woe is us, feeling sorrow for ourselves way, but we must know that trouble will come and we must begin to pray for the grace to endure it and to stand up for what is true of God. And number three, we must be brave and put God first even in the face of trouble. We so often see integrity as being nice when things are hard. In truth, the message of these chapters is that in the sight of God, integrity is where you place God. Above your priorities, above your goals, above your career, above what the world says is good or bad, above everything. That is godly integrity, when God is first and everything else is second. The book of Daniel is a real challenge to us in a country that's had it so easy for so long and a church that has become soft because we've been well-liked for a long, long time. The tide is turning, I promise you. The only question is, will we turn away and follow the culture and the crowd, and will we follow our saviour regardless of the cost? Get ready to stand for the King of Kings, because he will return, and he will return to see which of his people have stood for him when the world turned against. Shall we pray? Lord God, we lift up, Lord, these, just these thoughts, Father, as we go through the book of Daniel. Lord, we've talked very practically the last couple of weeks about dealing with power and position and leadership. We talked about the danger of pride. But Lord, this week, that the challenge is perhaps far more aimed at our Christian integrity, Father. And Lord, there is a real challenge to us, Father, as opinions or ideas or beliefs that we hold dear as Bible-believing Christians, become less and less dear to a culture that's moving away from you. Father God, I pray that you would give us strength and grace to be just like Jesus. Father God, he never compromised a single thing, yet he showed grace to everybody, even his accusers, even those who nailed him to a cross. Father God, may we be people that realize that we must carry our cross. that Lord, this is a calling to do it towards death, not towards comfort. Our reward is in heaven, Father, not on this earth. May we be tough, may we be brave, may we be bold, may we stand for you. I lift up everybody in this room, or particularly those that work uh, in the world, Father God, where it is increasingly harder to be a Christian in the traditional sense. Be with them, Father. Give them great wisdom beyond their years, beyond their maturity, Father, knowing what to say, what not to say, when to speak, when not to speak. Make them people of prayer, Make them people all of boldness as well when the time comes. Lord, prepare us for the future, we pray. Build your church, because we know the gates of hell will not overcome them. And we lift this all to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.